Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Uh, we made it as far as um, 18 last week, which happened to be our text for Sunday. A quick recap of uh, the parable of the vineyard owners. As we trace the history, we found out it was really uh, the Lord sending prophets to the nation, and instead of receiving them, they treated them shamefully, they beat them, um, used Jeremiah as an example. Uh, then the Lord pointing the, actually he's done speaking to the nation of Israel at the end of chapter 19. And so now he's sort of turning the tables and he's pointing the finger at them in the parable of the vineyard owner and saying basically which of the prophets didn't you kill? And then he turns the tables and he points the finger at himself as the father sends his own son hoping that he would be received, but he was not. Instead, they saw him as a threat, as we'll see tonight. The Lord is going to throw the ball into their court. They're going to try to trap him at least twice. And after the second time, it's going to say they dared not ask him any more questions because they simply couldn't trap him. They wanted to trap him and to have some accusation they could bring against him. And... Uh, So now the Lord is actually, our text on Sunday was making a major point that the Lord was going to destroy uh, those self-righteous Pharisees. And again, the key verse was the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And we did uh, sort of a side um, travel on um, anti-Semitism It's in the news again today. Boy, people are getting spooky, aren't they? And they cleared out Times Square today because of a motorcycle backfired. How many of you caught that on the news? Times Square just emptied out because a motorcycle backfired. And then there was some major corporation out east. It was just a rumor that there was a gun. And everybody freaks out and and runs. So everybody's on edge right now to say the least. I talked to my friend, um, Charlie Flores, Calvary Chapel um, in El Paso. He's the chaplain for the police department. And I was talking to him yesterday, and I said, boy, I bet you got your hands full. And indeed, uh, he does. But with the two shootings, um, people are just on edge. And... um, um, I believe these are just the beginnings of sorrows because, um, you know, this kid, 20 years old, 21 years old from Texas, uh, being influenced by a lot of the kids' video games that are out there today. As I was watching the news, the reporter says, I can't even tell you over the air the names of these videos they're watching. I can't do it. Um, so anyway... Uh, we spent a, quite a bit of time laying the foundation of where this all began and just how unaware people are that there's a spiritual warfare going on, not just, you know, we know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood as Christians. We all have 
spiritual warfare. But we narrowed it down just to the Jewish people on Sunday. Um, And it starts right in the garden when God cursed the serpent. He says, your seed will be against the woman's seed from here on out. And what that basically, I showed you one example in Esther where the enemy's only card that he can play, the only one he really has, is to completely eliminate the Jewish people. You have to have that as your background and foundation. Or you won't understand what's going on in the Middle East today. You won't understand Bible prophecy. Um, He's not going to give up even after the rapture is gone. We talked about that on Sunday, Revelation 12, that when he's finally cast out of heaven, what does he do? He knows he's got three and a half years left. He goes right after the Jewish people. And the ones that he can't get to, Zechariah tells us that he goes back and actually destroys two-thirds of the Jewish people that are still there. And the good news is, I made a comment, it's always good to go to the end of the book to see how everything ends. (laughs) And the way that everything ends is the Lord has gone to prepare a place for you, that where he is there you may be also. But having said that, he says it's going to be really dark and nasty. These are the beginning of sorrows. So when you see just how skittish people are and um, people perishing for lack of the knowledge of the word, not really knowing what the big picture is, spiritually speaking, it's an all-out war to destroy Israel and the Jewish people. So that's where we left off. Let's pick it up in verse 19 as um, they now basically tried to trap him. So let's read verses 19 to 26. And the chief priest and the scribes um, that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people for they knew that he had just spoken this parable against them. So we've just gone through briefly. If you weren't here on Sunday, you can still pick it up. Um, That was our text, verse 9 through 18. Um, so they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So they're just waiting for their opportunity. How can we get him? How can we trap him? Where is he going to mess up? And they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but you teach the way of God truly. Uh, Question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this question here by the Herodians was a loaded one designed to trap the Lord. If he had said, yes, pay tribute to Caesar, then he would have put Caesar ahead of Moses and ahead of their Messiah. If he had said, no, not to pay tribute to Caesar, then he would have been subject to arrest by the Romans. The method Jesus adopted in dealing with the question is a masterpiece. He asked for a Roman denarii, which is a coin. And it raises a question, didn't he have one of his own? <laughs> and he could have, he could have reached it in his pocket and he could have pulled, pulled out a coin and he didn't. He says, who's got a coin here? And then he says, whose inscription is on it, 
And um, he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a coin, denarii, and whose inscription is on there? And they answered, Caesar's. And he said to them, well, then render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's that are God's. The perfect answer. They could not, they had him trapped for sure as far as they were concerned, but he gave the perfect response. They could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer, and they kept silent. They were like, man, we can't get anything on this guy. He's got an answer for, for everything. So now they don't give up, and because he has been talking about the resurrection, um, the religious, re, Jewish religious hierarchy was broken up into two sections. Um, there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, there were the lawyers, there were the scribes. The two main groups were the Pharisees. They believed in angels and the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in either one. They didn't believe in angels or the resurrection. So they're the one that's going to pose this next question and in their mind showing the foolishness of anybody believing in a resurrection. That's their, that's their plan. So picking it up in verse uh, 27 here, then some of the Sadducees came who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, and they said, now teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring from his brother. Now immediately you want to, for an example, begin to think of the book of Ruth and Boaz. Uh, Naomi lost her husband, She lost her two sons. They go to Moab. Um, That's where Ruth comes from. And when it comes back, if you lost your property because you were poor, you could buy it back. Um, But in so doing, you would have to keep the law by raising up the name of the dead. So Ruth's husband, uh, Naomi's daughter, um, uh, is, is uh, somewhere along the line obligated to raise the family name of uh, Naomi. And it happens to be Boaz. And you know the story how it turns out. Boaz marries Ruth. Um, they have a couple descendants and eventually Jesse comes along and it's in, actually in the line of King David. So that would be an example of this. The law said if a brother dies that uh, he had to, uh, one of the brothers would have to marry just to keep um, the name alive. But he dies, verse 29, without children. And the second took her as wife and he died childless also. Then the third took her and in like manner, the seven. So they're going through all, all seven of them. First one married her, no kids. Second one married him, no kids. Third one married him, no kids. Fourth one, no kids. Fifth, sixth, and seventh. All seven of them married the same gal, and none of them had any kids. Therefore, 
verse 33. The woman dies also, therefore, in the resurrection, now this is said, you've got to pick this up, in sarcasm. In the resurrection, whose wife was, does she become? For all seven had her as wife. As far as they're concerned, there is no correct answer to this. And Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age, or in other words, the time that we're living in right now, are given in marriage, primarily to perpetuate the human population. Uh, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And, um, but as what's missing in Luke's gospel that we have both in Matthew and Mark, he tells them this first. He says, you guys err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Do not people err today not knowing the scriptures or the power of God? They err in both. There are those who don't know the scriptures and then there are those who believe that God still is not in the, in the signs and wonders and the gifts of the spirit. We believe in all the gifts of the spirit. I would probably make exception to one because I believe when it comes to being an apostle that um, one of the requirements of the 12 apostles was you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And when Judas was rejected, it was Peter that says, well, you know, the scripture says we have to have a replacement. Well, Peter didn't talk to the Lord about it. Paul, the Lord already had Paul picked out <laughs> as he calls himself, Paul, an apostle. So uh, we call people sensationalists, sensationists if they don't believe. So if you hear that biblical term, I like to call it Christianese, it simply means, and there's going to be a couple of them we're going to touch on tonight, they don't believe that God works um, by healing people today, um, by any of the gifts, uh, I believe, are all here. Uh, and I, w- I would make the exception, but I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but I, I believe one of the requirements to be an apostle, according to Peter, it says that he had to be one who was an eyewitness of the resurrection. So having said that, let's continue continue on, both Matthew and Mark, if you're taking notes, add, you guys err, you don't know what you're talking about because you don't know the scripture or the power of God. Verse 35, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age, well, the other way a person can be worthy in the eyes of the Lord to be in heaven is what he's saying here is that you have to have the righteousness of Christ. Good place for an amen. Because I don't have it, and you don't have it, and uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So again, we've attained his righteousness, and he took our sin. We stand by grace and grace alone. And as soon as works of any kind give you the inclination that you qualify for heaven because of 
of, of your good works outweighing your bad works is not biblical. Uh, it's just the opposite. All have sinned, there's only one that's good, and that's Christ. So when we read here, those who are counted worthy, well, I'm counted worthy, but it's because I put my trust that Jesus gave me his righteousness when he died on Calvary's cross. Uh, to attain that age, well, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So he's talking about heaven, and then he says, and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, uh, nor can they die anymore. So a lot of theology here. Uh, the first thing is that um, um, when, when you go to heaven, there, you'll, you'll know uh, your husband, you'll know your wife, um, but our bridegroom is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You're the bride of Christ. So when we get to heaven, your husband is the Lord Jesus Christ, which is distinguished between um, our ruling and reigning over the earth with him according to Revelation and those that enter into um, the thousand year millennial reign. And um, during that period of time, uh, there will be children that will be born. Only believers will enter it. But we go back to evidently the Lord restores longevity, just like he did uh, in Genesis 1 through 11. Um, Methuselah, 969, I think. Adam lived into his 900s. And uh, many of them, 700, 800, 800, 900 years old. It'll be the same during the millennium. Well, here's the thing. When you have a child, uh, they still have a free will. They aren't automatically marked for eternity uh, because they were born to Christian parents. As a matter of fact, the reason that Lucifer is not thrown into the lake of fire is that the Lord has plans for him. He's, he's put into the bottomless pit and chained for 1,000 years. And after the 1,000 years, they're gonna let him out. And the question is, why in the world would you do that? If you have him, get rid of him right, right away. No, if you're going to spend eternity and you're born during that 1,000 year period of time, say you're born in a 700th year and you're only 20 years old, well, you still have to exercise your free will. Uh, but you can only have free will as these people are getting older if you have a choice to make. In order to have choice, you have to have options. Up till this point, who is ruling and reigning? With a rod of iron enforcing righteousness. And, but that's going to come to an end at the end of the thousand years. Satan will be released. The Bible clearly says that he will go out and deceive multitudes that actually come against Jerusalem to try to take it. So what is the deceptive power of this, of this creature? What's mind-boggling to me is um, the higher critics, um, especially when it comes to psychology 
and people want to psychoanalyze you to figure out why you are the way you are. <laughs> and so that it's getting so um, ludicrous that they even uh, taking it back to what were you feeling in your mother's womb? I mean, that's how weird it really is getting. And then they will say, well, obviously you don't have any problems. Obviously your problem is your parents. And you are the way you are because you're a product of your environment. Now, if you had a perfect environment, of course, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be the way you are. You'd be, you'd be a loving, caring uh, person. Well, this, at the end of the thousand years, that puts that to rest once and for all. When my Bible says your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, who can know it? And if you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you and you have a choice to either live in the, and here it was, the perfect environment. You have the perfect king, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the church in administrative roles all over, uh, ruling and reigning with him. And this is gonna go on for a thousand years so, so much for being a product of your environment. Here's a perfect environment with the perfect ruler enforcing righteousness done immediately. Sometimes I read of these uh, serial killers and my attitude with some of them is preach the gospel and then have an old-fashioned hanging right then and there. Not, not five years in jail and millions of dollars of stack taxpayers' money. If he's guilty of killing 20 people, and I say give, give him a sincere opportunity to realize his sin and repent. But after that, I still leave Easter baby. And uh, I think if that action was followed, that would put more of a fear in people's life instead of having copycat murders. What you would have is people say, well, I'm thinking about doing it, but seeing how they dealt so quickly with this guy, maybe I better slow down a little bit. The reason Lucifer has to be released is to provide an alternative. The reason um, he was allowed into the garden was also to provide an alternative. God will make no, you can't force love upon anybody. You either freely choose to love or you freely don't. It's balls in your court. And I like to use the terminology, the Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman. He's not an arm-twisting business. He will never force you. He will show you what he's done. He'll say, greater love is no man than this that I have for you, that I died in your place. All the stuff that you deserve to be judged for and you should be held accountable for I took all of that. And all he wants in return is a gratefulness, like the 10 lepers. All 10 were cured. Only one came back to say thank you. And the Lord says, well, where are the other nine guys? Weren't 10 of them cured? Where, where are they? He was looking for the gratitude. And this can't be said enough. And that is that the Lord is more interested in his time with you rather than your time that you work for him. He's more interested in you spending time with him than you doing Christian works for him. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Because it's, it's all about love. And that's clear in 1 Corinthians 13. You can have 
all of them, including being a martyr. And if you don't have love, uh, then it means absolutely nothing. So he's explaining when you go to heaven, we're going to be like the angels. Well, one thing about the angels is that they're eternal beings. That's why hell was created, for the devil and his angels. There will be no more marriage. Um, uh, We will be with people that we have known. Our relationships are, are eternal. And where it talks about, Daniel talks about those who are wise will lead many to, who lead many to the Lord, a soul winner. Says will shine like the stars forever. And when you think about that, you go, well, why are they shining more than the other guys? Well, because I think people will actually have the capacity to remember who it was, where it was, and what I was doing when I got saved, and how the Lord manipulated the circumstances for that event to take place. And you will have an eternal gratefulness for that person. Well, put yourself on the other side of the coin. And you're thinking, Lord, you used me. Of all people, you used me to bring this woman or this man to you. And they have that in their memory banks for all eternity. That's why I believe it says those who are wise and win souls will shine like the stars forever and ever and ever. That is intended to be motivational. That when you're with people, you're always in the back of your mind wondering, how can I work this conversation around to the Lord? How can I get things to twist just a little bit, see if there's an open door? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. But we should uh, always be looking for it. You can't die anymore. Um, Verse 36, nor... Uh, they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Everybody lives forever. That's not the issue. You are a soul. You have a spirit. They are both eternal. And the question is, where are you going to spend it? So um, these verses here, 27 uh, through 38, um, the question of the resurrection, if you're taking notes, you find this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. It's an unusual law, but we see it, oh, that, this would have been a parable before in the book of Ruth. This one here, um, let's pick it up now in verse 39. Then some, this is the last time they're gonna try to trap him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you've spoken well. But after that, they dared not ask questions of him anymore. So now he turns the table. You guys done asking questions? My turn. And he said, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, and we're quoting Psalm 110 here, and whenever we have 
of fulfillment or the Lord referring back to it. I want to point it out as prophecy, the Lord verifying the Psalms as divinely inspired. And um, we mentioned on Sunday that Psalm 118 was a messianic psalm. Um, This is a messianic psalm also. For we read here, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David therefore called him Lord. How is he then his son? Well, this just snapped their brains right off because what the only answer that could happen here, Jesus is teaching his own virgin birth. How could David in Psalm 110, where he is speaking of a future descendant, call his own great-great-great-grandson his Lord? Well, the only way he can call him his Lord is from him uh, to be uh, the Lord's friend. The only way he can be the Lord is to be more than David's son. He must be bir- virgin born to be the son of God. Uh, this is a great thought that our Lord is teaching here. Notice also that Jesus identifies Psalm 110 to David. He said that David wrote this psalm by the Holy Spirit and Jesus says that this psalm is speaking concerning him, the Messiah. Well, they've been trying to trap him all this time, that he's not. And so he puts them right to something that they know very, very well. And this question goes on in verse 43. But in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to walk in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in a synagogue, and the best uh, places at feast. They devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Theirs will receive a greater condemnation. Um, a modern-day version of, of uh, devouring widows' houses, I think of widows, that are on social security, who love the Lord, they can't get out, and all they have to watch is Christian TV. And 95% of Christian TV is nothing more than people um, devouring widows' houses. I'm talking about the prosperity teachers. It can be subtle. It can be very, very direct. I was watching one video clip of uh, Bethel Church with Bill Johnson. Somebody was asking me what I thought about him the other day. And a person, um, it's actually a Calvary guy from another city. I, th- I thought he should have known better. Um, I, I said, are you serious? Are you asking me this question? I said, it can't get any worse than the three-ring circus that's taking place in um, Southern California in, in the Bethel Church. It is literally a three-ring circus. And the video clip that I saw was the pastor and the elders, they were all sitting back here, and they're watching uh, people doing just hysterical things in the name of the Lord. And any person with any common sense walking into the place, going, you guys are crazy. (laughs) And it's like Paul talking in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, The gift of tongues is a legitimate gift of the Holy Spirit. I speak in tongues, 
My wife speaks in tongues. But to me, it's very, very intimate, and I believe it's supposed to be. 1 Corinthians 14.4 says the gift of tongues is for self-edification. But then he goes on to explain, don't you dare do it in a public setting, like where you are right now. Now, there's people here that are visiting, people watching live stream. I think the best case of handling this was Stuart Briscoe. I only went, uh, had the opportunity to visit Stuart um, one time when he was pastoring. His son Peter and my brother Jim, who was here uh, with his daughter Brianna this last weekend, I asked him the last time he saw Pete, that would be Stuart Briscoe's son. He's a large church down. He says, I don't, he's too busy. He's got a huge church down in Dallas. And so we don't, we don't talk too much. But he, they played ball together, and he was best man in Jimbo's wedding. And anyway, when I was visiting the church, sure enough, some woman up in the balcony, right in the middle of Stuart's Bible study, takes off speaking in tongues. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. I wonder how Stuart's going to handle this one. And he says, you, you, yes, you, shut up and sit down right now. Ushers, in. (laughs) And I thought, and he just went right for it and got very, very firm right from the pulpit. And when everything was settled down and she was gone and everything was taken care of, you know what he did? He said, okay, let's explain what just happened here. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. And he simply taught the people that all things are to be done decently and in order. He says that was out of order. The Bible clearly says not to do it. She did it. And my job as a pastor was to deal with it. Anybody want to me an amen with that? And he goes on to explain, because if you're not born again, they're going to say you're crazy. All right, getting back to Bethel and Bill Johnson, uh, it's all of that and more, um, falling on the floor, slagging the spirit, dancing in all over the place, and anybody walking in would say, this, this is just foolishness. But this is what really tripped my trigger. One of them got up and he said, okay, we have to stop right now, and on, we have screens here, and they say, now we're gonna just take an offering. I mean, in the middle of all this, he says, just stop and sit down because right now we're going to take an offering. They took an offering, they went back and sat back down, and everything started up all over again. And um, if, if you're young, aren't taught biblically what's proper, what does it mean to have things done decently and in order? Don't get me wrong, Paul says, don't forbid to speak in tongues. Like if you have a home Bible study and you know that they're all believers there. We, we had a prayer prophecy back, oh, early 80s. And the interpretation was that we would be a, a hub for the Calvary chapels in this part of the country. Well, this is 1983. And there were no Calvary chapels here. So it seemed like the craziest thing that could ever, ever be. Well, This year, we celebrated our 30 years of having Calvary Chapel pastors' conferences here. What seemed totally, it wasn't logical at all because there was none. 
but now here it is all these years later, and um, we're still having Calvary Chapel Pastors Conferences, but we got it from a word of prophecy from the Lord. We didn't think one day, you know, it'd be a good idea that we should start doing this. No, it was simply something that the Lord gave us in a prophecy that he was going to do. Well, where were we? Somewhere in the Bible, last I remember. Okay, so um, chapter 20, we were talking about, um, back to 45, beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. They desire these places. and They make, I know where I got sidetracked, they devour widows' houses. And they just take advantage of those that aren't biblically sound. Wow, you mean if I tithe my 10% to your, um, sow my seed faith in your ministry, then it's going to come back for me a hundredfold? And um, uh, that's what they quote. And there are poor widows that, that um, bite into it. And the sad part about it is there's a lot, a lot of people watching the same TV program, sincerely looking for truth, sincerely looking for answers, and they look at it and go, what a scam. And um, people were just using their common sense. You know, it's just a ripoff. You know? I can tell a ripoff when I see one. And as a result, that's why the Lord says they will receive greater damnation just like they were doing when he cleansed the temple the Lord got mad he made a whip and he cleaned house (laughs) he says how dare you make this a place of business this is a house of prayer all right starting uh, chapter um, 21 then he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury okay talking more about money here so And then he saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. And so he said, truly I say to you that this woman, this poor widow, has put in more than all of the rest. For all of these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty has put in all the livelihood that she had. When it comes to giving, it's not how much you give, but how much does it cost you? You see, if you're a millionaire and you throw a thousand bucks in the in, in the love box, um, th- that's nothing compared if you're living on Social Security and you got five bucks left in your pocket at the end of the week and you take that five bucks and you give it to the Lord. So the Lord is saying, this woman here, well, she had... This was all she had, and she gave it. And the Lord is commending her that she actually gave more because what does it cost you is a question to give, to invest. To the millionaire, that $1,000 was, you know, like a quarter or dime or whatever. But to this woman, it was all she had. And the Lord is a good bookkeeper when it comes to this stuff. All right, verses five through seven. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, 
As for these sayings which you see, the day will come in which not one stone shall be left upon you that shall not be thrown down. And they ask him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be? Question one. And what sign will take place when these things are about to take place? All right. Um, Let me do a little reminder here of a couple things and and gaps in time. Um, We have a gap in time in Daniel 9, verse 26, when Jesus is crucified. And it talks about the Antichrist coming. And then in verse 27, we have a gap of time uh, between those two verses. Um, What we have here is two things going on. And um, two questions. First of all, they were looking at the beauty of the temple and the Lord is telling them that that temple was gonna be thrown down. So that there happened in 70 AD and uh, up to verse six, but it's a twofold question. So part of this has been fulfilled and um, part of it is being fulfilled. So the other part of the question, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Now again, the harmony of the gospels are important here. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. And um, I'll tell you what, go back to Daniel chapter nine because we see it a good example of the gap that I'm talking about. The very verse we read when the disciples asked the question, what about the temple, Lord? That had to blow their mind. They're ready to, to think the kingdom is coming in. So if you go to Daniel nine, verse 26, it's talking about when the Messiah would actually be crucified. So right now, as we make our way through Luke, he's going to be crucified on the Passover. This Sunday, we're talking about the Passover. So verse 26, after the 62 weeks, actually with um, all of it, after the 483 years or 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Uh, The Hebrew word is karat, means to execute, What? The Messiah is going to be executed? Yep, but not for himself. And then it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. There's a lot in this one verse. Uh, Titus of Rome were the people who came and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened in 70 AD, and Daniel's talking about it here back in Daniel chapter 9. What is he talking about? When Jesus was here, when he was crucified. And then he's telling his disciples that the temple will not have one stone left upon it. That's what he's referring to here. And the people of the prince who is to come, well, this tells me that the Antichrist has to come out of the revived Roman Empire because he comes from the people of the prince who is to come. That prince is a reference to the Antichrist. The end of it will be with a flood until the end of it war desolations are determined. Now, between verse 26 and 27, we have a gap of over 2,000 years. Just like that. doesn't explain it to us. 
but um, the he that when he, the he there is a reference that goes back to the prince who is to come, who's connected with the Romans who destroyed the city in 70 AD. It says, then he confirmed a covenant with many for one week. That's why I keep saying God, one of our points on Sunday, uh, in replacement theology, we talked about Origen and Augustine and how they taught that God is through with Israel and all the promises now belong to the church. And the point that I made is no, that's not, if you read all of scripture, that simply is not true, nor can it be, because God still owes Israel one week. Go back to verse 24. 70 weeks, or 490 years, are determined for your people. Notice this is Jewish only. For your people, Israel, and the holy city, which is Jerusalem. What's he gonna do? Finish the transgression, make an end of sin, make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, that hasn't happened yet, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Those are the things he's going to accomplish in a 490-year period of time. Well, after 69 of those weeks, the Messiah was crucified. Clock stopped. And he says, you're not gonna see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the he in verse 27, there's a gap right there between 26 and 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, this is Jesus refers to this when he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, and he even quotes it, he says, whosoever reads, let him understand, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So the Lord is confirming this in Matthew 24. In the middle of that seven-year period of time, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out upon the desolate. So what we have, if we go back now to Matthew 24, in Luke's gospel, two questions. When is, when is it going to happen? And what will be the, the sign of your coming? Well, what Matthew, again, and Mark add detail to, Luke does not. Um, he talks about, uh, we'll be talking somewhat about the um, wars and rumors of wars. But here he also talks about um, uh, the, the signs and wonders, earthquakes in diverse places, verse 7, nation rising against nation. These are the beginnings of sorrows. And then they will deliver you up for tribulation. Now I'm going to be coming back here to quote verse um, 14, but for now let's go back to Luke. And I just wanted to show that more detail is added when you go to Daniel. So verses five through seven, the question is twofold. Um, When is this going to happen? Matthew 24, he actually tells us. Um, He prophesied that it would be destroyed and then happened in 70 AD. 
And what sign, singular, notice, will, uh, will there be when these things are about to take place? Now, this is a very broad answer. Like Daniel, we're reading in one verse, and then we have a gap in time of the fulfillment of other prophecies. Now, this is probably a good place to um, stop. Well, let's read uh, a little bit farther down. And he talks about his second coming. Take heed and be not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotion, don't be terrified. For these things must come to pass, but the end will not come immediately. So even though the temple will be destroyed, he's now going into the future because we know of Daniel chapter nine, about one more week that God owes Israel, what's gonna happen right in the middle of that week? And why mainline Protestantism and mainline Protestantism don't get it. Now that's what's, if you got, I hope you got that point on Sunday, replacement theology. So just as they cannot take the book of Revelation literally, which explains these things in great detail, you have to be aware of the whole counsel of God. Or um, you end up allegorizing uh, the book of Revelation. Verse 10, then he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places. We could get sidetracked there easy enough with everything that's happening in Southern California right now. Famines and pestilence, There will be fearful signs and great signs in the heaven. But before all these things, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, deliver you up to the synagogue and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for a testimony. Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. And I will give you, uh, give you a mouth and wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Well, didn't he just prove that? <laughs> they came after him trying to trick him. He says, I'm gonna give you the same ability. Uh, I'm gonna give you the ability when they try to shut you up or trap you that you'll be able, the Holy Spirit will give you the words and you can just turn the tables right on them. Uh, you will be betrayed, even noticed by family members, by parents, brothers, relatives, friends, and they will send some of you to your death. We're not exempt even from death as believers. And you will be hated, not loved, uh, by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost, and in your patience possess your souls." Now, um, there he jumps ahead, as he does in Matthew. When you study the book of Matthew 24, it is not in a chronological order. Um, He talks about the great tribulation before he talks about the rapture of the church. He talks about the second coming of Christ before he talks about the rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church occurs before the second coming. 
So it's not in a chronological order. So as we look, um, I'm trying to think in a good place to bring in what I want to talk about. Well, we need to go through 26, I guess. Um, The destruction of Jerusalem. Now he's back to the first question. Uh, Not one stone will be left upon another. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that desolation is near. And um, we have two events. Uh, One that will happen uh, according to Daniel chapter 11 when the nations come against Jerusalem. And again at the battle of Armageddon when they come against Jerusalem. So we have two events He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And now when we compare that to Matthew 24, he prefaces it by saying, when you see the abomination of desolation, well, that's yet future. Three and a half years into the tribulation. He says, now when you see that, then flee. And let not those who are in the country enter her, For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written might be fulfilled. Well, if you're taking notes, just write down Revelation chapter six, verse 17, which says, this is the wrath of the Lamb. The Lord is patient, long-suffering, doesn't want anybody to perish. And I'm grateful for that. But the time is going to come when he says enough is enough, and he will take his church out, just like he took Noah out before he could do judgment, just like he took Lot out before Sodom and Gomorrah could be destroyed. Um, We believe that he will take the church out before it enters into this terrible seven-year period of time. Remember Daniel 9, verse 24? That one week, those 483 years, who is it for? The Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. The church can't be in that seven-year period of time. It's not for the church. It's for Israel, and it is for the city of Jerusalem. But woe to those who are pregnant, this is also Matthew 24, and those who have nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress and land upon the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I, I see a double meaning in, in this here because at this time when Jerusalem was destroyed, it does have the reference of the 70 AD because they were at that time driven into all the nations of the world. But a lot of similarities that we see that take place um, at the second coming. All right, verse 25 There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations. Now we're talking about the second coming and the tribulation. With perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring and the thunder and the rain falling on the roof making way too much noise for my Bible study. Oh, no, that's not in there. Can you believe it? Man, we're dodging one and getting hit by another one. Men's heart failing them for fear 
for the expectation of those things which are coming on earth. This is not 70 AD. Now I purposely said that. This is not 70 AD. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, it'll be a time like no other time. There's never been a time like it before. And there's not gonna be another time like it afterwards. All right, a little diversion at this point. Men's hearts will fail them for fear and then they will see the Son of Man coming with the power and great clouds. Clearly not. That period of time before 70 AD. Now I'm gonna introduce you to, some of you are very familiar with this, some of you will be hearing it for the first time. Sunday, I wanted to really make it clear what is replacement theology and the damage that it's done to the church especially when it comes to eschatology. If you left Sunday with that much that most of Christendom or Christianity does not hold, um, they hold that they have the promises that were given to Israel. And that's simply not true. And so we call that replacement theology. If you're writing notes tonight, I want to introduce you to a new one, a doctrine that very, very many prominent people um, hold to. Some people I used to look up to uh, quite, a, quite a bit have become what I call preterist. Now, if you've never heard the term preterist, I'll give you a paragraph and a definition of what a preterist is. According to preterism, All prophecy in the Bible is really history. The preterist interpretation of scripture regards the book of Revelation as a symbolic picture of first century conflicts. So first century up to 70 AD. It's not a description of what will occur in the end times. The term preterism comes from the Latin preter, meaning past, thus Preterism is the view that biblical prophecies concerning the end times have already all been fulfilled in the past. Preterism is in direct opposition to futurism, which sees the end times prophecies as having a still future fulfillment. Now, as as we look at this one here, with the second coming 27 through 38, um, when you see these, uh, let's go back to 27, then you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the power of great glory. That can't be the church because when he comes, we don't see him. We go to meet him. But in Matthew 24, in in the same context, it says every eye will see him. The difference of the Second coming in the rapture, we go to meet him. Second coming, we come with him. Old Testament says he's coming with 10,000s of his saints. Angels, yes, but saints too. On white horses. Question, do you know how to ride? Do you like white horses? Well, I have a fear of horses, I don't know. Well, you won't be then. You'll be saying, let me in on this one, Lord. And we return with him. 
And so, again, if you're a preterist, you have a lot of problems. It can, it can be taken apart very, very easily. But again, many people hold to that. And again, when you don't take a literal view of the book, we're, 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 the, we're, we're the ones that are futurists. We believe that what Daniel said, when you see the abomination, Paul talked about it again too, if you're taking notes, 2 Thessalonians chapter two. When you see the man of sin, the son of perdition, go into the holy of holies and demands to be worshiped as God, that's what Jesus is talking about. And then he says, when you see that happen, and he says, then flee. And um, do I want to go there now? Oh, let's go to Zechariah chapter 12. Um, let's go up to verse 31 first. Then he spoke to them a parable of the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourself that summer is now near. So you likewise, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, a particular generation, will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. We read in Daniel 9.24 a list of six things that God said he's going to accomplish in a 490-year period of time. When you get to the end of the seven years of the tribulation, you have 490 years. And that's when the Lord returns. So when is that going to happen? Well, after the fig tree buds. The fig tree has always been symbolic of the nation of Israel. And I could spend an awful lot of time telling you when um, Israel first came back, it was nothing but swamps and rocks. They drained the swamps, they planted trees, they turned it into the Garden of Eden, just like Ezekiel 36 says it would be turned into. It has the eighth strongest army in the world. Their technology in many areas is superior to our own. And uh, it's about the size of New Jersey. And he says, when you see it budding, the idea of budding here is becoming a nation. It's been 71 years ago they've been a nation. And they've been out of the land for some 1900 years, but they're back. And it's budded. So that tells us that we are to be watching uh, for these things. And it, it tells us that um, in Matthew's account that when they, uh, there will actually be uh, mourning that will take place uh, when they see him. Go to Zechariah, how much time I got? We gotta go quickly. Please turn quickly to Zechariah chapter, chapter 12. Let's go to verse eight. When it says, in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angels of the Lord before them. It will be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. If you're taking notes at Psalm 2, it says, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot a vain thing? They're actually going to fight <laughs> against the creator of the universe. Uh, 
says he who sits in heaven is going to laugh and hold them in derision. That's Psalm 2. But it's also referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. That actually never really takes place. They gather together to come against Jerusalem. And then the awareness, the remnant, that it was really Jesus all along. And there's this mourning that's going to take place. In verse 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me, whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad and Rimon in, in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, the wives by themselves, the ham, family of the house of Nathan by itself. This has never happened in history before. The wives by themselves, the family of the ones by, of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by, by itself. Do you get the feeling here? Something so un there's no words to put in it if you're Jewish and your whole life and hope is, is um, that the Messiah will come and establish his kingdom. And what they're talking about here is a realization. If you turn the page to uh, chapter 13, um, verse 6, it says, Someone will say to him, that's Jesus, What are these wounds in your hands? And he will answer, well, these are those which I was wounded in the house of my friend. So that's taking place. And yet, just a couple of verses down, somebody was asking me this question on Sunday. And this is where he wanted to know about the third that was left, where it comes from. And so I had him open their Bible, so this right here. And it will come to pass, and the land says, Lord, that two-thirds of it will be cut off and die. Remember it says he left the third that was protected and he went to make war with the woman for those that you were here on Sunday. Well, this is where we get the numbers from. We know that a remnant is a third. Why? Because two-thirds, the Antichrist, remember that's his only game plan, is to try to eliminate every Jew. So this is a hard thing to read. Two-thirds will be cut off and die but one-third shall be left in it, and I will bring the one-third through the fire. Well, that's what's happening when they're on the run from the Antichrist. And I'll refine them, and they will call on my name. What did Jesus say? You're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you're taking notes, write down Hosea chapter 5, the last verse. Hosea chapter six, verse one and two, talks about their iniquity and then them calling on the Lord. So the Lord kept his word. He says, you're not gonna see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this one-third remnant is gonna do exactly that and the Lord shows up and delivers them. All right, let's finish this up. Let's go back to um, Luke. And we only have a couple of verses left. What a great way to end this study as we talk about, remember this is his last week. 
The disciple are asking questions about the last days. They're asking questions about the temple. And now for the church. He says, take heed to yourself. Lest your hearts be weighted down with carousing and drunkenness. And the cares of this life and that day come upon you unexpectedly. Why do you think we hand out news bites? <laughs> we have these things going around the world. We want you to be aware how late it is. And um, we want you to know that we are not preterist, <laughs> that these prophecies were not all fulfilled in the first century. Uh, these are yet to come. Why else the warning? It says, be careful that that day will come upon you as a snare, verse 35, on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Um, Jerusalem, destroyed in 70 AD, that's not the whole earth, that's Jerusalem. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape. Who escaped? Noah escaped. Who escaped? Lot escaped. Who else is gonna escape? The church is going to escape. To escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mount called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So, to close with a, a word of encouragement for you to take advantage I believe it's late. I believe it's very late. This September 6th through the 8th will be our 21st prophecy conference. Come out for some of the, to see some of the best prophetic Bible teachers literally in the world today. I talked to David today, David Hawking, Chris Quintana, Curtis Bauer, uh, the creator of Agenda 1 and 2, Dr. Tommy Ice, one of the leading theologians uh, in the world today. Uh, Gary Kaw, uh, Elijah Abraham, uh, uh, Bill Koning from Washington. We have a lineup here, and then we're, we're bringing in Marvin and Gentry from Tennessee to do the special music. Guys, take advantage of this. One of the ways that we prove that we're not just watching but we actually are concerned enough. You know, I bet you if I bought one of my buddies, one of these guys is going to rock his noodle so much that he's going to say, that's in the Bible? That's what's really happening? This is what's coming down? This is what's coming down. And um, uh, so please, um, not only come yourself, take that time, even if it's vacation time, think about who you can uh, in, invite. Gary Kaw, just for example, is more about the, I've known Gary since he wrote the book En Route to Global Occupation. Uh, we've been friends, him and Audrey, for all these years. Same with the rest of the guys, for that matter. But um, um, what we're going through here is the disciples were curious, they had questions. A lot of your friends have questions. So leave the Bible study tonight knowing you are not a preterist. <laughs> You got that one down? <laughs> These things are yet to be fulfilled. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as the disciples were inquisitive and they wanted to know when and where, 
Um, Lord, we thank you for your word, that you lay it all out, and um, we pray for the rest of this evening. Pray for the Prophecy Conference, Lord, um, that many would come and some would come to know you, others would become better equipped and aware of the times and the seasons that we live in. So dismiss us in your peace this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What a great way to end this study as we talk about, remember this is his last week. The disciple are asking questions about the last days. They're asking questions about the temple. And now for the church. He says, take heed to yourself. Lest your hearts be weighted down with carousing and drunkenness. And the cares of this life and that day come upon you unexpectedly. Why do you think we hand out news bites? <laughs> we have these things going around the world. We want you to be aware how late it is. And um, we want you to know that we are not preterist, <laughs> that these prophecies were not all fulfilled in the first century. Uh, these are yet to come. Why else the warning? It says, be careful that that day will come upon you as a snare, verse 35, on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Um, Jerusalem, destroyed in 70 AD, that's not the whole earth, that's Jerusalem. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape. Who escaped? Noah escaped. Who escaped? Lot escaped. Who else is gonna escape? The church is gonna escape. To escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mount called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So, close with a, a word of encouragement for you to take advantage. I believe it's late. I believe it's very late. This September 6th through the 8th will be our 21st prophecy conference. Come out for some of the, to see some of the best prophetic Bible teachers literally in the world today. I talked to David today, David Hawking, Chris Quintana, Curtis Bauer, uh, the creator of Agenda 1 and 2, Dr. Tommy Ice, one of the leading theologians uh, in the world today, uh, Gary Kaw, uh, Elijah Abraham, uh, uh, Bill Koning from Washington. We have a lineup here, and then we're, we're bringing in Marvin and Gentry from Tennessee to do the special music. Guys, take advantage of this. One of the ways that we prove that we're not just watching, but we actually are concerned enough. You know, I bet you if I bought one of my buddies, one of these guys is gonna rock his noodle so much that he's gonna say, that's in the Bible? That's what's really happening? This is what's coming down? This is what's coming down. And um, uh, so please, um, not only come yourself, take that time, even if it's vacation time, think about who you can uh, in, invite. Gary Kaw, just for example, knows more about, the, I've known Gary since he wrote the book, 
en route to global occupation. Uh, we've been friends, him and Audrey, for all these years. Same with the rest of the guys, for that matter. But um, um, what we're going through here is the disciples were curious. They had questions. A lot of your friends have questions. So leave the Bible study tonight knowing you are not a preterist. <laughs> you got that one down? <laughs> These things are yet to be fulfilled. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as the disciples were inquisitive and they wanted to know when and where. Um, Lord, we thank you for your word that you lay it all out and um, we pray for the rest of this evening. Pray for the Prophecy Conference, Lord, um, that many would come and some would come to know you. Others would become better equipped and aware of the times and the seasons that we live in. So dismiss us in your peace this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.